This chapter has been described as more beautiful than all the works of art in all the museums in all the world, which is a pretty strong statement. We're only going to look at the first five verses because I intended to preach through the whole thing and uh, it was like jumping into the deep end of the pool and lead weights. I wasn't going to make it. <clears throat> so first five verses of John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, we do ask your help. This magnificent passage, and we are honestly not that magnificent of people, give understanding Give the words of life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> a story from when a couple of my friends got married many years ago. They uh, still kept to that horrible tradition of decorating the car uh, before the bride and groom walked out, which is most often a hateful experience, I think, for everybody involved. But in this case, the bride and groom, they're young, they're in love. It's a wonderful wedding. They walk out to the car, and it's been filled with styrofoam peanuts <laughs> to the sunroof, which is open. And they have to open the driver's side door and the passenger side door, and they scrape out enough for them to climb in, which if you've ever had to mess with styrofoam peanuts, they... Uh, it's not an easy process, right? It takes a while, and they're ready to go. They're ready to be gone. The, you know, receptions are fun and all for everybody else except for the bride and groom. They're ready to be out of there, and 20 minutes later, they get it clean enough. Obviously, you leave the back seat. You don't even touch that. You just get enough for everybody to get and get out. And they get in. They're driving across the state or whatever to uh, wherever they're going for their honeymoon, and uh, they start talking. And you know what you talk about after you get married. I will leave it at that. You know what you talk about after you get married. And they've been talking about what you talk about after you get married and other things. And while they're talking, they realize that at the reception, they missed one of their dearest friends. We'll call him Kenny. And they're like, where was Kenny? I mean, he's a groomsman. Where did he go? Did he leave after the wedding? What on earth? You figured it out, haven't you? It's a couple minutes later that the husband figures it out too. Locks the brakes in the interstate, gets out, walks around back, reaches in the packing peanuts, and throws Kenny out of the back seat and leaves him on the interstate and drives off. I was told to be my the groom and the bride. I, I really hope it's not true. I really hope it's not true. But you think about what Kenny heard. <laughs> 
that would be ex-friend Kenny if, for most of us, truthfully, right? It, Kenny got a portrait into something he kind of normally would not get to know about, right? The inner workings of this brand new married couple, the way that that couple interacted as a married couple with content of conversation that's only had as a married couple and suddenly Kenny is involved in that conversation. I mean, you know how it goes. Can you believe Aunt So-and-so? I mean, can you believe what she was wearing? Yes, Kenny got privileged to that conversation. (laughs) You see, John 17 is a much more wholesome, much more beneficial, and much more useful kind of experience. It's not that we're hiding and spying on the Trinity. It's that we are invited into a conversation between the first and second persons of the Trinity where we get to see an intimacy of their relationship that we see nowhere else. You see, most of the time when we hear Jesus praying, he's teaching his disciples how to pray. This situation, he's not. You know, most of the time he's spent in prayer, he goes away and prays privately. He spends his hours of prayer away in the mornings and in the evenings and often quiet places in private closets, gone away from his disciples. But now it's different. They've left the upper room. They're heading across town. They're heading out to ultimately where Jesus would be captured and eventually murdered. And somewhere along the way, Jesus finds some quiet spot and some quiet moment. And he goes into a a time of prayer and his disciples, kind of like that awkward friend standing there enjoying the intimacy of which they are not quite members. Maybe for us, a better illustration might be, you know, that time where you were with a maybe the third wheel. It was you hanging out with another married couple and they got in a married fight while you were there. And you're like, um, I'm not supposed to really be part of this conversation, but I can't go anywhere. I'm kind of stuck. This is really uncomfortable. It's kind of that same moment where we're invited in, not to a fight between father and son, but really into the prayers of Jesus. And we get to see his priorities. We get to see his relationship with the father. We get to see the intimacy between God the father and God the son in a way that we don't get to see anywhere else. And it's beautiful. And there's really kind of two parts to this prayer. We're going to look at it actually a little different sermon structure than normal. We're going to look at the actual structure of the passage and then kind of what do we do with the structure that Jesus gives. These first five verses, he begins and he addresses the Father and he makes one prayer request. And it's interesting, it's a prayer request specifically for himself. He's not praying for his people, that will happen. He's not praying for unbelievers. That doesn't happen in this passage. He's not praying for the world. That actually explicitly says he doesn't do in this passage. But here he begins, and he begins with a prayer for himself. And you have to understand a bit of the tenderness of what's taking place. He knows what he's about to do. He knows he's going to die and it's going to be terrible. He knows that on that cross he's going to take all of the wrath of God upon him. He knows he's about to suffer. I mean, we know crucifixion is one of the most terrible ways to be killed. And yet that's the easy part of the rest of his night. 
We just did the Apostles' Creed. It, it gives us what he did. You know, he died on the cross, and then it gives us the summary statement of what he did on the cross, and it says, he descended into hell. That's the summary of what takes place on the cross. And it's in light of all of this turmoil and turbulence and terror that's coming that Jesus begins with this. He spoke these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven, and he says, Father, the hour's come. It's time. Remember, his whole ministry this point has, up to this point has been filled with, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. Don't tell anyone. It's not time yet. And now we hear from his lips, it's time. All the decades of growth and development, all the decades of memorizing the scriptures, he had to do it the same way we do. He's human. All the decades of prayer, of obedience, builds to this moment. Father, it's time. And in light of that, what's the request that he makes? This is amazing. It's intriguing to me. He doesn't say, give me help. I think that would be a good prayer request. You're about to endure the wrath of God. I would think that would be a good one. He doesn't say, can I get out of this? We have that painted in another prayer, working through that concept. Instead, actually, it's interesting. What does he say? Glorify me, your son, that I may glorify you. Give me glory. Wow. I mean, that, again, that's shocking, actually. That Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, about to undergo the most terrible punishment imaginable to be the righteous one who's murdered unjustly, to suffer the wrath of God. And what does he say? Glorify me, please. And honestly, we read that the first time, you're like, I don't even know entirely exactly what that means. I mean, I know what glory is, and I know what it means to glorify, but in this setting, what on earth? Jesus, what are you asking for? Well, uh, conveniently, he actually gives us further explanation in the last verse here. And now, Father, look verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And that's an amazing explanation. When we get this glimpse into the intimacy of the Trinity and Jesus is praying to the Father in his prayer request and all of the difficulty, what is his prayer request? Lord, I'm ready to be back with you. Father, I'm ready to enjoy the relationship, the intimacy, the tenderness, the beauty, the glory, all of the things that I put away to come into earth. I'm ready for those things to pass away and to move into resurrected life. We know this in Philippians and two and other places. It tells us that when Jesus was incarnate, he put away his glory. When he was born, it wasn't like he came out of, you know, his mother radiant in the glory of God. That would be a very weird experience for the midwife, I'm sure, right? Baby comes out, it's glowing, I don't know what to do, right? It would be terrible. He comes out like a normal baby. He's placed as a poor baby would be placed into a poor baby's place, stuck in a manger. 
He grows up with poor parents who raise him the way that poor parents raise poor children. And he would have worked hard, learned the scriptures in his free time. He was an amazing kid. But even his parents don't get it. And you remember halfway through his ministry, his brothers and sisters are like, you're crazy. You need to stop talking. You need to come home. I mean, we know you're a little off. You need to stop. You need to come home. And in light of this, all of this, Jesus' simple request is, Father, I'm ready to have the glory that I put away taken back up again. Bring me the glory. Now, we don't really have a category in our mind for this because we are fallen creatures, and when we put on glory like that, the best illustration maybe we have today are athletes. And they're, you know, they're, they're trying to glorify themselves. But the interesting thing is those athletes are, in essence, stealing glory from someone else. They, they don't deserve it. Yes, they're a great athlete. Great, you can you know, hit a three-pointer from half a mile away. That's really wonderful. You, know, you can throw a touchdown through a box about the size of somebody's hand. That's great. That's wonderful. You can hit a golf ball you know, 500 yards. That's wonderful. But here Jesus is doing something different. He's actually asking for the glory of God to be given to him because it belongs to him because he is God. It's something that no one else can ask for. This is not the type of prayer that we can replicate. This is not one of those where we can go, oh, he's my perfect example. I should do what Jesus did because none of us can pray this prayer. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We can't relate because none of us were with him before the world existed. None of us are the agent of creation. None none of us are God in flesh. There is an interesting part, though, here in the middle is that Jesus, and again, teaching us how to pray, does something incredibly intriguing. He has his request at the beginning and the end. But then in the middle, he does something captivating. He gives the Father reasons to answer his prayer. The second person of the Trinity is asking the Father for something and is giving him reasons for why it's a good idea to say yes. Look at what he says. There's a handful of them here. There's three, actually, specifically. Father, the hour has come, verse 1, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. So, Father, please glorify me. Return me back to that status of glory that I had prior to the world existing, prior to this incarnation thing, prior to me putting away all of my glory. So that the Son may glorify you. Why? Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Why is it that the Father is supposed to give the Son this glory? Well, he begins by saying, because it belongs to me. It's authoritatively mine. This glory belongs to me. Why? Because all things belong to me, because I am the agent of creation, he says. You gave, the Father gave Christ the Son authority over all flesh. He is authoritative over all people. He's authoritative over their physical bodies. He's authoritative over their hearts. Not to ruin next week's sermon, but to prepare you for the difficulty. He talks about election. It's hard. 
All flesh, all people, all hearts, all minds, all souls belong to Him. The worms and the hippopotamus, they belong to Him. The clouds and the trees, they belong to Him. All of creation belongs to Him, but specifically salvation belongs to Him. So not only does He have authority over all flesh, but specifically to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So the Father elects prior to the creation of the world. He chooses His own out of His mere good pleasure. We do not know His reasons other than He made it in His good pleasure, and it's not based on our merit. It's not based on our works. And those that He has chosen, He has given to the Son as a present. And the Son as An obedient son has gone and is at this point in the process of redeeming them. And he says, look, Father, you you gave me all things. You gave me your people. I am redeeming them. I'm ready to get my glory back because it belongs to me. So authority is this first reason why he he is authoritative nature of Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He continues further and says, look, verse 3, this is eternal life. So you've given me people to give eternal life to. And what is eternal life? Well, it's not living forever. That's the way many evangelicals talk about eternal life. It means that you you die, you go to heaven, you never die again. You live forever. Eh, Wrong answer. That's a happy byproduct of it, but that's not actually what eternal life is. Eternal life is this, verse 3, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, what is Jesus saying? Why should you glorify me, Christ? Well, you should glorify me because I am the way to heaven. All of these people that you have given to me, all of these people scattered over every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every time, all of these ones that will be redeemed, all the billions and billions and potentially trillions if we're still in the early church period of church history, all of them may know the Father and the way they know the Father is because Christ has accomplished it. He is the way to eternal life and eternal life is to know God. In fact, actually, we know that this whole answer of eternal life means you never die, you live forever is a bogus answer because there's a whole bunch of people that are going to live forever and have eternal life that don't know God. In fact, actually, it's a better way to call it, I guess, would be eternal death where they die physically once, but they're raised again, but not raised to life, but they're raised to eternal torment. They're raised with resurrected bodies designed for judgment and they spend eternity in hell at the displeasure of the Father. Instead, no, we His people, we are given this resurrection, this life where we may know Him, where we may love Him, and where we may be loved by Him. And then verse 4, your final kind of reason here. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I love that. I love that because I'm a grammar nerd and because it's in the past tense. Here, King Jesus is on his way to die and he's like, oh, by the way, it's already done. It's already done. There's no worries. There's no fear. There's no, oh, he might back out. 
like, you've probably all heard that sermon on the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying and sweating blood. And the pastor, wonderfully well-intended, actually implies that Jesus is like cowardly and trying to back out or find another way. No, he's not. He's already accomplished. He knows the deal is sealed. He's going to win. And it's because this salvation is accomplished. It's because Christ has redeemed his people that he can then again close this portion of his prayer with the same way he started it. Lord, it's time. In a few short hours, I'm ready for my glory. And you realize that's actually what happens. They walk out to the garden. He gets arrested. He's taken that night through a ridiculous trial. It's a farce. It's a pretense, a pretend sense of justice. And then they murder him. Well, they torture him. Then they murder him. And when he goes on to the cross, while he's on the cross dying, he takes on all of the totality of the wrath of God so that when he chooses to give up his spirit, notice they don't kill him, he chooses to give up his spirit. The second his eyes close on that cross, he opens them in glory with glory. He wins. He wins. This is not the prayer of a a man who is not confident in accomplishing his work. This is the prayer of of the, the second person of the Trinity who knows exactly what will happen. So in light of that, what do we do with a passage like this where we, again, like Kenny in the back of the car getting to see a part of the intimacy of the Trinity, what do we do with passages like this? There aren't many that give us this clear of a look inside. What one is marvel at the Lord Jesus. Again, if you read the scriptures and you find yourself constantly kind of finding Jesus to be a normal, ordinary, boring character... I would lovingly suggest you're reading the scriptures wrong. Here's a man who's staring down the barrel of the wrath of God, and he says, oh yeah, by the way, it's already accomplished. That's pretty profound. I mean, that's either the greatest man of all time because he's God, or the biggest fool in human history, and we know he's not the second. It should give us a sense of marvel. It just wonder that this, this God would operate this way. Secondly, it gives us a sense of why we can pray in his name. Now, kiddos, I would address you specifically. Many of you, you're being taught by your parents, and I love this, to every prayer ends with, in Jesus' name, amen. But sometimes you don't think about why you say, in Jesus' name, amen. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Is because he wins. Because he's the one who goes to the cross to die for you and to die for me. He's the one who makes us right with God. He is the way to eternal life. So we close our prayers saying, in Jesus' name, amen. Because he's done it. It also teaches us that when we pray, it is a healthy and a good practice to attach reasons to our prayers. I give you one that I think is probably the most helpful way to think about this, or illustration of this, is when we pray for people to get well. 
you notice this church, we do this. I've already done it at least twice this service already. But why do we want people to get well? Why? I think that's an important part of your prayer life. Jesus, I I ask that you would heal this person. Why? So that, and then give reasons for it. Now think about this for Grady. Grady's not a young man. Many of you know this, some of you don't. He's been ready to go to glory for a long time. He's not afraid. He hasn't been. I know Grady. I've worked side by side with him for almost a decade now. I pray weekly that the Lord doesn't take him home yet. Not for Grady's sake, because Grady will have a party the second he's gone. But for the good of the church, and for the good of his people, and for the good of me. Because I learn from Grady, and I grow from Grady. And the Lord has used him as a godly example, an illustration for me to learn and grow from it. A righteous man. And he's used him tremendously in this church. As some of you have been in his shepherding group, and he's discipled you, and mentored you, and taken care of you, and ministered to you. Shown up at the hospital. I pray the Lord leaves him for those reasons. Not because it's best that he stays alive, because it's not. I mean, at least not for Grady. If I want Grady to be really healed, I'd pray he die. In fact, actually, Spurgeon did that with great frequency. Spurgeon would come in and pray for people that were sick, and he'd lay hands on them and ask that the Lord would heal them. And like a full third of the time, they'd die under his hand. Like right there, like on the table, dead. Man, Lord, answer your prayer, they're healed. I might suggest that when you pray, it's a very healthy practice. And part of the reason being is it shows your motives. It's like when you do math, you learn long division, right? Your teacher isn't okay with you just being like, oh, it's four is the answer. Like, no, you have to show your math as to why, how you got it. Uh, Giving your reasons is like showing your math in your prayers. Why is it that Jesus wants to be glorified? And the answer is because he deserves it, because he's accomplished salvation, because he is the source of eternal life. All of the reasons that deserve glory. When I ask the Lord to give me a new car or to give me help for this thing or to pass this test or whatever, why am I asking? You see, it's like showing my math and it shows my heart. And sometimes, guess what? You're going to find out your reasons aren't good. They're really bad, actually. Oh, no. In fact, actually, this is what makes sense of those prayers we talked about just last week. Or Ask anything in my name and I will give it to you. That's part of the reason why is you get to show your math in your prayers. And then I'll close with one final application of this one. I do find it intriguing that the son's prayer at the very beginning is glorify the son and the explanation he gives at the very beginning is so that I can glorify you. We know. We talked about it in Sunday school. Sola Deo Gloria. We know that all of salvation is about God's glory. In fact, actually, all of creation is about God's glory. I would suggest one of the great motives in prayer is so that we might glorify God in these things. So that we might glorify Him when He answers our prayers. Again, think about how the ways He's answered the prayers for this church in the past. Think of the babies that God has answered prayer about. And we can say, look, we pray this way so that we can glorify you. And we do, don't we? We try to tell the story and say, look what God has done. Let's give him credit where credit is due. May it be that God is glorified in and through his people. May it be that God is glorified in and through our prayers. 
And may we marvel at Jesus, the victor, the king of creation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the way to eternal life, for knowing you is eternal life. Thank you that salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, we do ask that you would forgive us. So many of our prayers are silly prayers. And we do ask that you would change us and teach us so that we might pray uh, in a way that brings you glory. That we might have that childlike faith that Jesus obviously loved bringing children around him constantly. Might we submit ourselves before you. Might we be your people and you be our God. And might we be glorifying you all the time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.